Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm Frank Bruni. And this is The Argument. Several weeks ago, Ross, Michelle, and I discussed the case of Tara Reid. She, of course, accused Joe Biden of sexually assaulting her more than a quarter century ago when she worked in his Senate office. We discussed the difficulty of reconciling liberalism and feminism. We talked about how one balances the importance of hearing her out and continuing to grant Joe Biden some presumption of innocence. Since then, there have been developments that raise new questions about her credibility. And they've also raised the question of whether she's done damage to the Me Too movement. Ross and Michelle and I will also take a fresh look at Norma McCorvey, better known as Jane Roe, as in Roe v. Wade. She was a pro-choice hero, then switched sides, then, it seems, switched sides again. So what exactly happened? We'll also hear a recommendation from Michelle. But first, Tara Reid. Michelle, I want to get your take on it, but first, let's make sure our listeners understand what we're talking about when we say recent reporting, recent revelations. Can you take them through some of the questions that have emerged about Tara Reid in the last week? So when this story first broke, um, journalists from mainstream outlets, I think, were in a pretty difficult situation because a lot of them had tried to report out these allegations, um, including Laura McGann from Vox had spent a year trying to substantiate them and couldn't. Uh, A bunch of mainstream reporters had interviewed Tara Reid last year when there was a bunch of stories about Joe Biden kind of touching people inappropriately, giving them unwanted back rubs. So, but once her story was sort of smuggled into the public sphere via the kind of hardcore Bernie left, you know, first on um, Katie Helper's podcast, and then through left-wing magazines like Current Affairs and Jacobin, eventually it became incumbent on people to report on this accusation as a phenomenon of the political race. And then everybody was in a dilemma because there's a taboo, and it's a taboo that, you know, I've played my own small part in shoring up against kind of publicly taking apart the credibility of people who accuse powerful men of sexual abuse. And at the same time, you didn't have to dig that far to see a lot of red flags in her story, um, to see a lot of red flags in the way that she behaved on Twitter, kind of making wild allegations about all sorts of people, some of which were provably false. So slowly, one by one, people started doing investigative deep dives into her life. And what they found was a history of um, fabulism, you know, kind of a history of people feeling like she had conned them, that she, you know, sometimes by kind of appealing to their political sympathies um, and then more serious accusations that she had lied under oath both about her educational 
credentials, but also about her time in Joe Biden's office and the work she did in Joe Biden's office on the Violence Against Women Act. And so at this point, I feel like immense damage has been done um, to Joe Biden's campaign. Immense damage has been done to the Me Too movement because some of these taboos have been shattered. And, you know, tremendous damage has been done to Tara Reid, who's basically had her life torn apart um, for public consumption. And we, I think everyone would be better off if this story had never been pushed out without kind of the journalistic vetting that it deserved. Ross, do you agree with that? I, I agree with the sort of narrative. Um, and I guess I, I showed up today prepared to agree with Michelle that real damage has been done to me too. Um, but I, I have a slightly different view of what that damage is. And the way Michelle tells the story, it sort of leaves me thinking, well, maybe this is in fact the kind of thing that, you know, actually needs to happen for me to, to work as something other than just a simple system where, you know, men get accused and are sort of presumed guilty and and are pushed out of whatever positions they happen to be in, right? I mean, because, you know, they're, they're in any society that welcomes allegations of sexual assault, there are going to be false or dubious allegations of sexual assault. Like, that's just sort of an inevitable corollary of sort of opening up um, opening up more dialogue about um, male sexual misbehavior. Once you've crossed the line, and I think it's good we've crossed the line into a world where more and more women get a hearing for these stories, she has a right to tell the story. If she's going to tell the story, somebody's going to cover it. And once it gets covered, um, you know, there isn't sort of an alternative to some kind of deep dive to determine her credibility. And I guess I don't really think that this is been devastating for Joe Biden's campaign. Um, you know, I, I think that, I mean, it is, it's certainly possible that this becomes part of some miasma that keeps some Bernie, young Bernie Sanders voters from supporting him. I would just turn it back to you both. I think you could make an argument from a pro Me Too perspective that this is how the system has to work. What, what do you guys think? Can I mention three things that I really struggle with in the aftermath of this? So, Ross, you brought up that important, that all-important phrase, presumption of innocence, right? This accusation was made, um, and people paid uh, over time a certain degree of attention to it, as they should. But all of this stuff got hitched to it when it was just an accusation, when we didn't know the truth of what happened more than a quarter century ago. And so... I read things from the left, from the Bernie supporting left, saying, well, this taints Joe Biden's candidacy, and clearly we need to move on to a different nominee. Where's the presumption of innocence in that? Wait, but there Frank, can I this... just interrupt you for a quick second? Because yeah, I feel absolutely. Like, I, in a way, I feel like the causality there is backwards. I mean, I feel like the story was pushed out by people who very much wanted a different nominee as a means to get it, right? So it wasn't, oh, this is so terrible, now we need a new nominee. It was, No, that, that was said after gap. the fact. Is, right, but it was the story was pushed out in the first place as like a last-ditch yes. attempt to get rid of Joe Biden. Well, it was part of it was part of what we had to evaluate when figuring out what to make of the story. But it, but in terms of the stuff that cascaded from there, it went beyond that. For example, I mean, I remember very, very distinctly the Morning Joe Mika Brzezinski interview in which Joe Biden came out finally publicly and denied this. 
And she said over and over again, you should open all of your records, your archives at University of Delaware, so that people can search through it to see if there's any paper, any piece of paper there that mentions Tara Reid. And Joe Biden said correctly that that would be a, a huge step of disclosure, well beyond what other presidential candidates have been asked to do, and certainly well beyond Donald Trump, who still hasn't released and clearly will never, ever release his tax returns. Now, Trump shouldn't be the standard for transparency or disclosure ever, but Biden was being asked to go far beyond what other candidates have done. And so I feel like once one of these accusations is made, we sometimes run very far down the road and we leave presumption of innocence way behind in the dust, no? But there's things about this story that suggests that kind of ill-intentioned people can kind of hack that system because, you know, one of the stories about Tara Reid, there was a lawyer who she spoke to and the lawyer said that she felt like Tara Reid was trying to plant a story with her so that she could later come back and say, oh, I told this story to this lawyer at the time. But again, I think it, it seems like this system that we have to understand what makes an an allegation corroborated has been, I think, in this instance, sort of hacked or manipulated to give a story much more credence than we now know it deserved. If if that's right, then this is a case where part of why people felt compelled to take it seriously was that much of the American media and American liberalism had committed itself to an even looser standard of corroboration in the Kavanaugh case, right, where there was nothing contemporaneous and all the attempts to find something contemporaneous went nowhere and all of the corroborating evidence came from more than a year or two later right? well and so, i i and i actually think it's worth i i still do think that that you know again what you would call outcry witnesses um or you know kind of telling pe telling people this story before it had any political salience i do think that that is still a um, a kind of a worthwhile way to think about evidence in these cases. Can, can I ask the two of you about one more thing I struggle with here? And I realize I'm all struggle today, but I, I, I use that word <laughs> genuinely because the, these are such difficult matters to discuss and to come to conclusions about because, because it's unknowable what happened. Only two people really know what didn't, didn't happen. And the rest of us are just kind of clutching at straws. But as as these questions about uh, Tara Reid's credibility have multiplied, and they're all grounded in different things, I flash back to the fact that in the beginning, when people said, well, she's changed her story several times, well, she told a bit of it at this moment, and then not another whole chunk of it until much later, a lot of that behavior, whatever you want to call it, was chalked up to um, the ongoing residual vest vestigial trauma of sexual abuse. And that certainly makes sense. And I would hate for us not to be fully, fully empathetic and sympathetic with that. But is there a danger of hanging on trauma, a lot of stuff that should in fact give us pause? How do we distinguish between what are the vestiges of trauma and what are signals that this person's story maybe uh, should foster more skepticism than it's fostering? I mean, well, one one way to think about it is the way that Laura McGann in that Vox essay that I think Michelle cited sort of approached things. And she basically made the argument that 
you know, that the, the sort of successful Me Too prosecutions, if you will, meaning not prosecutions in court or not mostly, but in the court of public opinion, have involved multiple stories from multiple women that establish a pattern where each case corroborates the other cases, right? And so that frees you a little bit from the trap of sort of pushing everything onto a particular personality or a particular psyche. Um, I think the challenge, though, again, is that when partisanship is at stake, everybody wants to shift the standards a bit, right? So the, you know, the Bernie people really, I don't think they were all cynical. They really want to believe Tara Reid because they don't like Joe Biden. And similarly, you know, in the Brett Kavanaugh case, there was a sense that having having one credible seeming accuser should be enough. And and then when, you know, there were other accusations, one of which seems not at all credible, one of which was in sort of a gray area, that was sort of taken to add up to enough to, you know, get you to, um, you know, the end of Brett Kavanaugh's reputation. But but can I say this very, but, but Ross, don't you think, I mean, imagine a world in which Tara Reid is publicly cross-examined under oath and, you know, kind of tells her story in a way that seems very compelling and doesn't contradict itself. I actually think that would have been enough to annihilate Joe Biden's reputation. I mean, what drives me crazy is people comparing the kind of weird way that Tara Reid's story has come out, you know, these like kind of multiple interviews, this highly edited interview with Megyn Kelly, a bunch of tweets, a bunch of medium posts, um, you know, several of which kind of just contradict each other with, again, um, Christine Blasey Ford coming forward with a bunch of sworn affidavits, with a polygraph, with therapist notes, and then going on television and letting herself be grilled under oath um, for hours and hours. And again, had Tara Reid simply done, simply met the same standards that Christine Blasey Ford had met, I'm not sure Joe Biden's candidacy survives. Let's leave the Tara Reid discussion right there. Before we head to break, we asked you all how you think your city or the country should begin to loosen social distancing measures. Here's some of what you had to say. Hi, my name is Julia. I live in Seattle, Washington. I am extremely eager to get back to a workday that starts at one time and ends at another time. Hi, my name is Kyle. I'm from Michigan. I would like to see the state start reopening in a way that separates people who have been fully quarantined and are remaining fully quarantined from the people that are still out and about. There's a part of me that doesn't like this because it does feel kind of classist to segment people into those of us who have the luxury from working at home and those who don't. But at the same time, I'm too nervous to send my daughter to preschool with the children of kids who have parents that are continuing to work and be exposed to a really large number of human beings. Hi, I'm Philip. I'm calling from Berlin, Germany. I'm Austrian. Um, I'm looking forward to when the whole mask dance is over. We're, we're a few weeks ahead of you guys, so you'll get a, a sense of what I mean. Just that when you enter a restaurant, you have to take your mask off and you have to put it on again, and no one really knows what the right etiquette is. So um, good luck and good health from Europe. 
You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. 1. Because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com matter. That's netsuite.com matter. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. A new documentary, a.k.a. Jane Roe, looks at the tumultuous life of Norma McCorvey, the woman identified as Jane Roe in the landmark abortion rights decision by the Supreme Court. McCorvey died in 2017, but the documentary has put her back in the news. Michelle, can you start us off by explaining the big scoop in the documentary? Yeah, so Norma McCorvey, um, the Jane in J- Jane Roe, in 1995, um, had a very public conversion to the pro-life cause. Um, a guy named Flip Benham, who at the time was running the anti-abortion group Operation Rescue, um, put his headquarters right next door to the abortion clinic where McCorvey at the time was working and kind of on her smoke ba- breaks, cultivated her and eventually won her over. And it was, you know, as they say in, in this documentary, she was really a trophy for the anti-abortion movement, right? Even Jane Roe says Roe versus Wade was wrongly decided. Um, and she you know, gave a lot of speeches. And I saw her, I think, 14 years ago at a protest outside an abortion clinic with um, Flip Benham. And what she says at the end of this documentary is that it was basically all an act, that she is still pro-choice, that she's proud of the decision that bore her name. But this was a way to basically make a living. And she sort of showed that she had I think over the course of many, many years, gotten about a half million dollars in various emoluments from the anti-abortion movement. And this, the headline coming out of this was basically that she was paid to switch sides. I don't think that's quite right. I think that she was a kind of unstable personality who comes from a tremendous amount of trauma and really wanted to be the star you know, really resented the pro-choice movement for not giving her more of a prominent role as an activist. She was a bit of an embarrass. She could be a bit of an embarrassment to the pro-choice movement. Um, yeah. So the big revelation was that the conversion was a fraud. So Ross, does that matter? I mean, it matters in many senses, but does that hurt the pro-life cause? Is this an embarrassment that she was being manipulated and was in turn manipulating? I mean, no, not in any sense that goes to really the heart of the debate. The You know, the perspective of 
pro-lifers on this documentary has been very mixed. And you've had some people who've said things like, well, you know, I saw her at pro-life events in the 1990s and I I felt like, you know, people were buying her drinks when she was obviously an alcoholic. And, you know, I mean, mean, people sort of telling stories that seem to fit with the idea that she was being used or exploited in some way. At the same time, lots and lots of people who were very close to her, including Catholic priests and others, have said, look, you know, she, we were in touch with her after this documentary was filmed. And, you know, she told us that she hadn't changed her views. So are Um, you suggesting we can't take the documentary's deathbed, quote unquote, deathbed confession at face value any more than we can take her pro-life statements at face value? I want to say that I think everybody who thinks seriously about abortion, it's not just that we should have sympathy for Norma McCorvey as somebody who had a hard life and an unstable personality and got caught up in a great political debate and maybe was used by both sides. We should have sympathy for someone who was at the fulcrum of an issue that, you know, if you're pro-life, she has her name on the decision that led to millions and millions of, of dead unborn children, right? And you know, if you're pro-choice, she has, you know, her name on the decision that led to the emancipation of women. Those are an extreme set of poles to sort of move between. And so I wouldn't, yeah, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to pass any judgment at all, I guess. Well, I think, I mean, look, I also came out of, I also came away from the documentary with a lot of sympathy for her and kind of more sympathy than I would have expected given, you know, what, from my point of view, the tremendous damage that she caused in the latter half of her life. To, to be clear, they didn't tell me this is stuff on the pro-life internet. I'm not, okay. I'm not claiming special, <laughs> special knowledge here. Hey, Ross, you are qualified and competent to answer the following question, though. So the pro-life cause is is all about, or it, it says it's all in the service of, of a kind of morality. I mean, it, it, it talks in moral terms, it cloaks itself in morality. Are you then allowed, in pursuit of that goal, um, to throw morality aside in the way you deal with a human being? I mean, is, is the way in which they dealt with Norma McCorvey is that just to be forgiven and forgotten, or doesn't that matter? No, of course you're not allowed to exploit another human being. But I think there's a question about, you know, in when someone wants to claim and occupies a significant public role as this sort of convert figure, then it can be hard to say exactly, you know, what counts as exploitation, right? Is it exploitation to pay somebody $2,000 to give a pro-life speech if you know that they've, you know, had a hard upbringing and might be, you know, a little bit unstable. Is that, is that exploitation? If, if personal instability is a reason not to pay someone to give a speech, then, you know, <laughs> the world of speech giving. I mean, I guess to me, like, like the initial, the initial, let me put it this way, the initial cut on the story that I, Michelle, I think, rightly did not endorse that sort of the pro-life movement like bribed her to become pro-life seems to me totally ridiculous. This is someone who over the course of 20 years was paid, you know, the equivalent of of what is what is $500,000 over 20 years cash cash out to like like $25,000 a year in paid speeches. I think from the point of view of the pro-life movement which is not exactly flush with cash, this, you know, a lot of this probably seemed more like charity. 
and or it seemed more like the normal thing where you pay somebody an honorarium to give a speech, which we have all done without anybody claiming that we're being exploited by the people who pay us. Well, let me just quickly say, I mean, $25,000 a year, um, you know, in the 90s for somebody who is extremely poor, right, and sort of working intermittently as a cleaning lady is not nothing. You know, it's... it. it, it but it's not... A, no, I agree but it's I wanna, not but, nothing, but it's not enough to, to claim that, like... I mean, you could tell a story where she just, you know, she had her conversion for the money, but I don't think you would fault the movement for paying her market value speaking fees to someone who was this sort of iconic figure. Although, can I say something? Because to me, one of the interesting things that this film raises is that the pro-choice movement doesn't really do that in the same way. And I'm not even I'm not even sure that that's, um, you know, something positive about this movement that I identify with. I mean, I kept thinking of this, this aphorism, the right makes converts and the left hunts heretics. Because there's another convert in this documentary, somebody who's fascinating to me is somebody who has, you know, kind of been involved in pro-choice politics for my entire life. Um, You know, I remember the Reverend Rob Shank. I remember the time he brought fetal remains to an abortion clinic in Buffalo, New York, um, which is where I grew up. You know, I used to do clinic defense before homeroom when I was in high school, when the spring of life came and tried to shut down all of the clinics in, in that city. And it is astonishing to me that he has also had this conversion, right? That he's somebody who was a leader in the kind of militant wing of the anti-abortion movement and who now has, you know, become much more introspective, um, has kind of broken with the Christian right, although he still considers himself an evangelical, now says that overturning Roe versus Wade, as he says in the documentary, would cause chaos and pain. But as I have not seen any kind of pro-choice groups try to make Rob Shank um, a kind of poster boy, or I don't think I would have even been aware of the scope of his conversion if I hadn't seen this documentary. The the pro-life assumption is that conversions of the heart turn people from being pro-choice to pro-life, and conversions of expedience move usually Democratic politicians like Joe Biden, right, who used to be sort of mildly pro-life into the pro-choice camp. And whether that's true or not, I think that probably shapes part of the reaction to a figure like McCorvey, where, you know, it's it's sort of it's sort of assumed that like, yeah, this is, you know, we are we're a movement of converts and this is the ultimate convert. And so, of course, we should we should welcome her and assume that she's sincere. Why doesn't her saying, yes, it's all a con, and of course I think women should be able to get an abortion, why doesn't that shake that narrative? Well, I don't know. Maybe it should shake that narrative. I, I think it should shake the narrative in the sense that it should, it should you know, be a reminder of just the deep complexity of human beings, right? I think you're right that you don't have the same kind of um, intense conversions on the pro-choice side, I mean, in part because, you know, the pro-choice side is, you know, it's not entirely secular, but it's not um, an evangelical movement in which kind of conversion is the primal experience. But I certainly think that so many women that I know who've had children have become much more deeply pro-choice as a result of that experience. 
just understanding what it is to be pregnant and give birth and, you know, kind of contemplating the sheer horror of somebody forcing that on you against your will. Um, And so I think that there are kind of intense emotional experiences of change. Guys, can can we pull back uh, just for a moment from the abortion question in and of itself? And I, you used a phrase moments ago, Ross, that that I found um, really meaningful and that resonated, which is the the um, deep complexities of human beings. And when I uh, absorbed this documentary, when I read Michelle's terrific column on it, you know, I thought of something that actually connects our earlier discussion about Tara Reid with this discussion about Norma McCorvey, which is how much messier, how much more complicated people are than the causes that they get swept up into or even become symbols of. And don't you feel we very easily forget that as we end up um, kind of twisting those people to whatever political purposes we have for them? I mean, of course, to some extent, people are really complicated. But I mean, look, I, you know, I'm a Roman Catholic, right? So I think it's, you know, it's possible for people to also be saints. And that's sort of, you know, when, when, the, when the church sits down and tries to figure out whether to make someone a saint, at some level, that's part of what they're looking for. They're looking for a kind of deep integrity between what somebody said and taught and represented and how they actually lived. And often, you know, often people are really complicated and there are huge gulfs between, you know, what they're famous for and who they really were, right? I mean, there was this... I think I have a harder time than you, Ross, in believing in saints. But what I do believe is that we have political discussions and we come up with political solutions that are not nearly as nuanced and complicated um, as the people who are discussing and symbolizing and fighting for these things. And that discrepancy concerns me, the sort of the purity um, of the discussion around causes versus the complexity of the human beings that they're going to affect. Isn't that just inevitable about like, you know, the sort of the the very different roles of um, politics and activists and maybe art and journalism and the humanities, right? They have just sort of different endpoints. One is to simplify and one is to complicate. That's a great point, but I don't know that it's entirely inevitable. And I feel like it's impossible to kind of disentangle this right now from the nature of partisanship in our country. Well, it's not just, I mean, but it's not just partisanship. I mean, right, this is a life and death cause, this is something with immense moral weight for people like Ross. And for me, the idea of, you know, forced childbirth is so dehumanizing that I don't think I would feel like a full person if I lived in a country where it was mandatory, right? When Ross was talking about saints, the first person who popped into my mind was George Tiller, the abortion doctor who was um, murdered in Wichita, Kansas. Um, I guess it was a decade ago now. And so when you're talking about just such irreconcilable views of um of the good and what it is to be a human being, then of course people are going to reach for the kind of starkest possible rhetoric and examples. Yeah, I don't George Tiller is not a saint. Um and he is not the first person 
that I think of um, as, you know, as tragic and horrifying as his murder was. And that's a huge gulf between me and Michelle that, you know, is really is really hard. It's really hard to make policy that doesn't leave leave those two sides thinking of themselves as enemies, which in a sense, you know, they are. It is definitely difficult to build a bridge across that gulf. So let's let's leave the discussion there. This is the time of the show, as our listeners know, where we step away from the news with a recommendation. And Michelle, nobody's recommendations surprise and delight me like yours. So you've got the floor. Tell us what you have for us this week. Well, that's a high bar, so I don't know if I'm going to cross it. But um, so and this is actually a very bougie and self-indulgent recommendation. But um, if you, like me, go to a lot of or went in the before times to a lot of group exercise classes. Um, You probably know that's been wiped out by the coronavirus. And the people who taught those classes have been, you know, really devastated. All of the teachers at the gym that I used to go to have been laid off. And so my favorite teacher has become my Skype personal trainer. Um, twice a week for an hour. It's like one of the few kind of non-work things that gives me some sense of structure. And, you know, it's nice to see someone that I used to see twice a week, um, to see someone digitally twice a week, to have, you know, kind of a small part in making sure that he still has, you know, some work. And so if there was someone who you, whose class you used to take, um, you know, see if they're doing this because it will, it could be a really good thing for both of you. So I'm in terrible physical shape. Um, so I don't, I don't have anything to offer on this, but I will, but I will say to back up Michelle's recommendation that my, my wife, um, attends tough girl and she is obviously as listeners know, just had a baby. So she hasn't yet rejoined the virtual version of Tough, tough girl, but from everything, um, everything that I've heard, um, it, well, I, I don't know. I'll be curious when she gets back into it, <laughs> if your point about it not being quite as tough is borne out, Michelle. Um, I, I ordered a couple of kettlebells for Abby. Um, and yeah, the pricing, the pricing was really quite something. It's the two of you are inspiring me, I hope to a whole new level of physical fitness. No, literally, Frank, the only time I'm picking up the kettlebell is when it comes in the mail and I carry it to my (laughs) wife and say, darling, here's your your kettlebell. There's nothing inspiring going on here. Ross, and you know what that transport to your wife is called? That's called cardio. You're doing your cardio. (laughs) You guys are selling yourselves short. Michelle, you said you wouldn't pass the bar, but you did pass the bar because you gave us all the hope for pandemic physical fitness and the specific recommendation again is this my specific recommendation is if you take group fitness classes you know find your teachers and hire them as Skype personal trainers awesome advice and uh, and good for many people even beyond yourself thank you that's our show this week if you're enjoying the argument please leave us a rating or review in apple podcasts that helps other people find the show the Argument is produced by James T. Green for Transmitter Media and edited by Sarah Nix. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Constanza Gallardo, Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Paula Schumann, Lauren Kelly, and Michele Teodori. 
Our theme was composed by Allison Layton Brown. Thank you all, and we'll see you back here next week. Give me, give me, thir- give me ten seconds. I just have food in my mouth. <laughs> Hold on, don't. Sorry. No, that, that could be intimate and real. It's. I mean, it is. We did food last week, though. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done.